Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. So um, we've been putting off this play and this playwright for quite a while because... Because I hate Johnson. Because he's the literal he's worst. He's a douche. Um, because he sucks and his plays suck. But, and he's bad and his plays are bad. And I will not have any of you Johnson stands rushing into the comments and atting me on Twitter. Don't at me, bro. Johnson sucks. If the literal human who wrote the literal book on literal Johnson cannot literal convince me, you can't, okay? So, like, don't come at me. Uh Johnson sucks, and I'm allowed to have these opinions. Thank you. Are you done now? Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Whamlet. Uh, and this week we're talking about Ben Johnson's The Alchemist. Mm, I don't know yes. why I sang it that way, but I did. Um, <laughs> most weeks what we do here on the show is we discuss a different play by our favorite guy, William Torkelton Shakespeare. You I wrote it, man. On there. You no, absolutely did. One hundo p, you did because I, I copied I... and pasted this over from the Duchess. Uh, oh, thing. <laughs> and I copied and pasted that from something else. Yeah, well, I didn't do this, this. shell. So this, this is not. I didn't do great. That. Anyway, um, <laughs> so we discuss plays here. Sometimes they're at a 101 level. And even mm-hmm. when it's not Shakespeare, but it's Johnson, we're still going to like help you out at our 101 level. Yeah. It's introductory stuff. It's everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes and other cool stuff like our opinions that you're going to get literally nowhere else. Great. Um, regardless of Jess's feelings about him, because this is a new playwright to us, uh, one of Shakespeare's contemporaries, we like to do a little thing called Meet the Contemporary. So, Ben Johnson, this is your life. And um, I'm just going to read some stuff on the... Uh, I have a copy, an edition of Ben Johnson, Four Plays, edited by Robert N. Watson. So this is his little introduction, just to give credit where credit is due. Um, but basically he covers all of the things we usually cover. So I'm just going to read snippets of his very brief introduction about Johnson. And that way <laughs> we don't have to have Jess getting apoplectic in the middle of this biography. Uh, okay. So Ben Johnson, he was born in 1572. Uh, he was Quote, a passionate man with no apparent interest in love, a working class child who became an exemplar of high court culture, a decorous classicist given to extreme drunkenness and murderous violence, a self-proclaimed stoic driven by appetites for praise and pleasure, and a dedicated social climber who repeatedly sabotaged his own advancement. He was a moralistic writer who always seemed to side with his rogues, a genius comic uh, of comic drama who repeatedly withdrew bitterly from the theater. Uh, So um, he's a dude of contradictions, as you will come to see. Johnson's father was a minister who died before he was born. His stepfather was a bricklayer, and Johnson was supposed to follow in the bricklayer's footsteps, um, but he didn't. Johnson was physically gigantic for his era, extremely tall and eventually extremely fat, uh, and he lived an outsized (laughs) life. He volunteered for the wars in Flanders, where he reportedly challenged an enemy soldier to single combat and killed him. All we really know about his wife is that in his alcohol-fueled conversations with William Drummond, he called her a shrew, yet honest. They had several children together. Uh, The death of his first daughter and first son 
of the plague, BT dubs, uh, are lamentingly, uh, lamented movingly in his epigrams, and there's no evidence that any of his legitimate offspring survived into adulthood. By 1597, he was acting and writing in the nascent theater industry and heading for jail. He played uh, the lead in Thomas Kidd's The Spanish Tragedy and was called one of England's best tragic playwrights uh, in, let's see, though neither Johnson nor anyone preserved any of the plays on which that judgment was based, um, which is weird for Johnson because he liked all that praise and liked to commemorate it. In August of 1597, he was imprisoned for his part in finishing a satiric play, now a lost play, called The Isle of Dogs. The next year, within a few days of opening the opening performance of his hit comedy Every Man in His Humor, with William Shakespeare in the cast, Johnson killed another fellow actor in a duel. Yeah, he did. Fortunately, it was not Shakespeare. It was some other poor, hapless actor. Um, Johnson escaped execution by claiming to be a clergyman because any person able to read Latin could claim exemption as a clergyman. But he had his thumb branded and his belongings were confiscated. And to make things worse, while he was in jail, he announced his conversion to Catholicism, which was then essentially illegal. Uh, upon his release from prison, Johnson channeled his pugnacity into scholarly arrogance launching a prolonged literary and sometimes physical brawl, now hyperbolically known as the War of the Theaters, uh, which is actually referenced in his play Volpone. And we've talked briefly, I think, about the War of the Theaters before. Uh, Johnson used his literary skills and scholarly reputation to gain the patronage of powerful aristocrats whom he followed to their country houses, leaving his own family back in London at the risk of plague, which killed his first son. Uh, after the notorious gunpowder plot was thwarted, Johnson was discovered to have dined with the main conspirators only a few nights before they attempted to blow up England's monarch and parliament. Hmm. Johnson emerged hmm. from that dark period to write a series of great and popular comedies, including Volpone, Epicene, The Alchemist, and Bartholomew Fair, as well as the best of his surviving tragedies, Sejanus, His Fall, based on Roman uh, ancient history, and a number of his lyric poems. He became uh, King James's leading author of masks, and he was prolific in his mask writing, uh, elaborately produced ceremonial allegories designed to instruct and flatter the high-ranking persons who watched and often performed them. Johnson's theatrical achievements were often social liabilities as well because he was a dick. Along with the instances already mentioned, the early play Poetaster, the mid-career Sejanus, an Epicene, and the late Devil is an Ass each landed him in trouble with the authorities and sometimes in jail. Johnson's lifelong struggle to construct and project a dignified self through his literary art culminated in the 1616 folio of his works. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, Ben Johnson compiled a collection of his own works and had them published himself. This is why he's often referred to as like the first author. Yeah. Because he was so involved in the publishing of his works yeah. and really cared about the way it was presented and preserved yeah. for the world. And, and he was made fun of a lot for that. Like a lot. Uh, as, By me included. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but a fired in uh, 1628 destroyed his books. Sorry, in 1623 destroyed his books and his unpublished works. He started having strokes in the late 1620s that rendered him eventually a paraplegic. And he died in 1637. Interestingly, his grave in Westminster Abbey is a diamond-shaped stone that says only... Oh, rare Ben Johnson, a stone so small that it seems to confirm the rumor that his, that this giant was buried vertically. The rumor uh, mm -hmm. that he was also buried upside down suggests an, uh, an apt ending for such an endlessly contradictory character. Oh, rare Ben Johnson. Uh, and that that's what I have in his little biography. So. I, I will say that the poem that he wrote on the death of his son is particularly moving. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like his drama. Yeah. Really any of it. This play mm -hmm. kind of included while also being accepted. Um, <laughs> but his poetry is is decent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I like his poem uh, to Celia. The one about... Um, Drink to me only with thine eyes. It's really pretty. I don't know that I know that one. Yeah. Um, anybody? Yeah. Read his poetry if you want. Yeah, his poetry is pretty. To have okay. a chance of liking this man, he yeah. was a pugnacious yeah. jerk who picked fights whenever he could. He was 
overly sensitive to insult and yet hurled insults all the time to everyone, including to Shakespeare. (laughs) Like, (laughs) what a guy. So there he is. That's your introduction to Ben Johnson. You're welcome, I guess. Hey, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, moving on. Uh, Before we kick into a summary, we always like to give you a five-word unhelpful title. Mine, I think ours are kind of similar this time. Uh, Mine Mm -hmm. is Assholes Profit from Plague Panic. Sound familiar? Yeah, mine is Enterprising Business Folk Game the Plague. Hmm. 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 Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, that's what this play is about. Is. There's no subplot. There's nothing. It's it's no. nice and tight. Except that it's not tight. It's so long. <laughs> it's very oh long. Oh my God. It's so long. It's very long. <gasps> okay. It's like Lear sized. Yeah. It's a fucking long play. Hamlet sized. Too long for a comedy. Sized. That's for damn sure. Yeah. So. Uh, I mean, Shakespeare, not Shakespeare. Johnson didn't know how to be brief no, is the thing. he did not. Like, all of his plays are fucking long. Yeah. Shakespeare at least gives us, you know, like, nice, tight comedy bears. Nice, tight Macbeth. Yeah. Nice, tight Shrew. I don't know. Shrew's pretty short, right? I guess. The early plays are pretty short. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Yeah. Well. Okay. So let's yeah. talk about the DP. Yes. Dramatis Personae, but only the really important ones. First and foremost is a guy named Subtle. He's the titular alchemist um then we have face who is the house kept the the housekeeper um he's also known only to his boss uh as jeremy the butler <laughs> jeremy uh, yeah. okay then we have doll common who's uh their colleague in the neighborhood we have dapper he's a clerk uh, and then we have drugger a tobacco salesman uh, the person who owns the house where all of this action takes place uh, is named Lovewit. He's Face's employer. Mm-hmm. We have Sir Epicure Mammon, a knight. And Surly, who's a gamester. Mm. And Tribulation Wholesome, an Anabaptist <laughs> pastor. Just like the best name. It's, it's pretty funny. Uh, he's accompanied by... I was thinking Ananias. Um, but Ananias? Sure. Ananias works. Okay. Uh, Ananias is an Anabaptist deacon. Mm-hmm. Yes. Then we have Castrol, who's an angry boy. Uh, and finally, Dame Pliant, who is Castrol's sister and a widow. So uh, why should we care about this play <laughs> if, if we don't like Johnson or even if we do like Johnson? Well, why should we care about this play? Right this very little minute in the era of coronavirus outbreaks... Um, it's really relevant. Uh, these two guys hoodwink their entire community by preying on their fears and needs for cures and pseudoscience and stuff. Uh, and the play, a playhouse is completely emptied because of plague and then its rightful inhabitants return. Wondering, I'm actually kind of wondering if we're going to start seeing more productions of The Alchemist in the years to come after this when we come back to some kind of a new normal. Because because of its allegorical, like, right this minute meaning. It does speak to plague. Yeah. It speaks to plague. I mean, it's already been showing up a lot on Twitter. People are talking about Mm -hmm. it. So Yeah. Yeah. It's a plague play. Yep. A plague, if you will. Ha. 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 I saw what you did there. Just... Hey, thanks. <laughs> I've I've mastered my letters. I don't know if you know that about mm, me. <laughs> I did. I did know that. Yeah. All right. Great. Okay. All right. It's summary time. Let's do this. Um, so we're going to summarize The Alchemist for you in a segment that this week we are calling Johnson Sucks, but this summary sure don't. <laughs> All right. Are we ready with the timer? Does time even matter um, anymore? Do we even time care? Time does not matter, and I don't care, okay. but also, um, let me just, just just so I know whether I got the summary <laughs> under five minutes, because the play is so long. Mm-hmm. Ready when you are. Okay. Act one. An outbreak of plague in London forces a gentleman, Lovewit, to flee temporarily to the country, leaving his house under the sole charge of his butler, Jeremy. Jeremy takes this opportunity to use the house as the headquarters for scamming his neighbors. He transforms himself into Captain Face and enlists the aid of Subtle, a fellow conman, and Doll Common, a prostitute. The play opens with a violent argument between Subtle and Face over splitting the profits that are coming in. Face threatens to have an 
unflattering engraving made of, of subtle, Dahl breaks the pair apart and reasons with them that they must work as a team if they are to succeed. Their first customer is Dapper, a lawyer's clerk who wishes Subtle to use his supposed necromantic skills to summon a spirit to help with his gambling. The trio suggests that Dapper may win favor with the fairy queen, but he must subject himself to humiliating rituals in order for her to help him. Their second mark is Drugger, a tobacconist who wants to establish a profitable business. Next up comes a wealthy nobleman, Sir Epicure Mammon, who expresses the desire to gain himself the Philosopher's Stone, which he believes will bring him huge material and spiritual wealth. He is accompanied by Surly, who doesn't believe in alchemy at all. Uh, Mammon is promised the Philosopher's Stone and promised that it will turn all base metal into gold because that's what it's supposed to do. Surly, however, suspects Subtle of being a thief. Mammon accidentally sees Doll and told, is told that she is a lord's sister who is suffering from madness. Uh, Subtle manufactures an argument with what fucking how did we say that? Ananias An Ananias there it is Ananias uh, who is an Anabaptist and tells Ananias that he should come back later with a more senior member of his sect Drugger returns and is given false and ludicrous advice about setting up his shop he also brings news that a rich young widow Dame Pliant and her brother Castrol have arrived in London both subtle and face in their greed and ambition seek out to win the widow act three Ananias returns with his pastor tribulation wholesome and they pay they agree to pay for goods to be transmuted into gold. These are, in fact, Mammon's goods. Dapper returns and is promised that he shall meet with the Fairy Queen soon. Drugger brings Castrol, who, on being told that Subtle is a skilled matchmaker, rushes to fetch his sister. Drugger is given to understand that the appropriate payment might secure his marriage to the widow. Dapper is blindfolded and subjected to fairy humiliations, but on the reappearance of Mammon, he is gagged and hastily thrust into the privy. In Act 4, Mammon is introduced to Dahl. He's been told that Dahl is a nobleman's sister who has gone mad, but he is not put off and impays her extravagant compliments. Castrol and his sister come back. Castrol is given a lesson in quarreling, and the widow captivates both face and subtle. They bicker over who is to have her. Surly returns, disguised as a Spanish nobleman for reasons. Face and subtle <laughs> believe that the Spaniard speaks no English, and they insult him. They also believe that he has come for a woman, but Dahl is elsewhere in the building with Mammon, so face has the idea of using Dame Pliant. She is reluctant to become a Spanish countess, but is vigorously persuaded by her brother to go off with Surly. The tricksters need to get rid of Mammon. Doll fakes a fit, and there is an explosion from the laboratory. In addition, uh, the lady's furious brother is hunting for Mammon, who leaves. Surly reveals his true identity to Dame Pliant and hopes that she will look on him favorably as a consequence. Surly re re reveals his true identity to Face and Subtle and denounces them. In quick succession, Castrol Duggar and Ananias return and are set on Surly, who retreats. Drugger is told to go and find a Spanish costume if he is to have a chance of claiming the widow. Dahl brings news that the master of the house has returned. Act five. Lovewit's neighbors tell him that the house has had many visitors during his absence. Face is now the plausible Jeremy again and denies this accusation. He has kept the house locked up because of the plague. Mm -hmm. Surly, Mammon, Castrol, and the Anabaptists return. There is a cry from the privy. Dapper has chewed through his gag. Jeremy can no longer maintain this fiction. He promises Lovewit that if he pardons him, he will help him obtain himself a rich widow, Dame Pliant. Dapper meets the Fairy Queen and departs happily. Drugger delivers the Spanish costume and is sent to find a parson. Face tells Subtle and Doll that he has confessed to Lovewit and that the officers are on their way. Subtle and Doll have to flee empty-handed. The victims come back again. Lovewit has married the widow and claimed Mammon's goods. Surly and Mammon depart disconsolately. The Anabaptist and Drugger are summarily dismissed. Castrol accepts his sister's marriage to Lovewit. Lovewit pays tribute to the ingenuity of his servant and face asks for the audience's forgiveness. The end. Boom. Yikes. <laughs> Under five minutes. Yeah. Nice, nice and tight summary. Good job. Yeah. Good job. I like this play. You know, the first time I read it, I was like, oh, this is this is actually kind of funny. I'm I'm, I'm here for this. It's a sort of a, a tepid endorsement is about all I can sum <laughs> up for. You're like, for well, Jonathan. it's not a complete dumpster fire. That's what no. we can say about it. No. <laughs> uh, I'm wondering, it's time for a taste of text. 
in which we read mm-hmm. a small but crucial scene from the play to give you a little bit of its mm-hmm. flavor. I'm wondering, Jess, if we shouldn't just mm-hmm. read like the first, I don't know, 20 lines or so of Act 1, Scene 1, like the opening fight between yeah, yeah, yeah. Face and Subtle. Yeah, and there's also Doll, so one of us needs to also take on Doll. Right. I mean, how far do you want to go to By Your Means Dr. Dog? or? Yeah, like the first 20 lines should be fine. Dr. Dog. <laughs> yeah, let's stop there. Okay. Well, then I will be Face. Okay. And um, maybe also Doll, because she just has, it looks like one line. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Great. And I will be reading okay. for Subtle. So, folks, Great. this, so this is, is the very top of the play. Yep. <laughs> Act one, scene one, inside Lovewit's house. Enter Face, Subtle, and Doll Common. Believe it, I will. Thy worst, I fart at thee. Have you your wits, my gentlemen, for love? Sarah, I'll strip you. What to do? Lick figs out at my... Rogue, rogue, out of all your slights. Nay, looky, sovereign, general, are you madmen? Oh, let the wild sheep loose. He threatens face with a file. I'll gum your silks with good strong water and you come. Will you have the neighbors hear you? Will you betray all? Hark, I hear somebody. Sarah! I shall mar all that the tailor has made if you approach. You most notorious whelp, you insolent slave, dare you do this? Yes, Faith, yes, Faith! Why, who am I, my mongrel? Who am I? I'll tell you, since you know not yourself. Speak lower, rogue! Yes, you were once, times not long past, the good, honest, plain, livery three-pound thrum that kept your master worship's house here in the friars for the vacations. Will you be so loud? Since by my means, translated suburb captain. By your means, Dr. Jog. So, <laughs> that's the that's the opening brawl mm. between the boys, mm. face and subtle. So there that is. Duck I do I dog. do like I do like I fart at thee. It's yeah. great. It's very good. It's very reminiscent of Monty Python's I fart in yeah. your general direction. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean I would argue that Monty Python is reminiscent of this. Sure, sure, sure. Because this okay, came first. Fine. Because chronology. <laughs> By a long right. shot. <laughs> but you know. Yes. Um, all right. Well, how about I tell you some shit? Yeah, I please guess. do. Okay. Yes. So the, the play takes place more or less in real time um, at midday on November 1st, 1610, which was a Thursday. Mm. Uh, one hour passes between 2, 5 and 3, 2 and 3, 4 takes place at 1 p.m. So that sort of puts you in the in the general time frame of the okay. day uh the play is mostly in blank verse which is kind of unusual for johnson most of his plays are really prose heavy um volpone is also blank verse but be fair is super prosy um and epicene is also super prosy and those are all of the johnson plays that i've read mm-hmm. um so i guess maybe maybe all of the rest of his plays are in blank verse and i have a a misinformed idea of what his plays are anyway that's neither here nor there uh so the play premiered in 1610 at the blackfriars and was probably also performed at the globe the cast included richard burbage robert Armin, john hemmings and henry condell those are some names that our listeners might be familiar with Mm -hmm. um some of the initial performances were reportedly hissed for reasons that I am not sure why, other than people didn't like it for reasons. Hmm. Um, it was performed at Whitehall for James I's court in late 1612 or early 1613, somewhere in there. The King's Men remounted the play between 1616 and 1619. This time around, we know that Richard Burbage played Subtle and Henry Condell played Surly, and they performed it at court again in 1623 of all of the props needed for this play the most prevalent one is money um the play needs you know swords and keys and a handkerchief and some pieces of clothing and some trunks but money is everywhere there's a whole list that's been compiled by the wiggins catalog which i have talked about at length on this podcast Mm -hmm. um so here's here's the list in one two we need four angels uh and then later two angels in one three we need a portague i hope i'm saying that right 
Uh, in 2-3, we need 10 pounds plus two other unspecified sums. In 2-6, we need a piece of gold. In 3-2, we need a purse of money. In 3-4 and 3-5, we need Dapper's Purse, 20 nobles, which are comprised of 120 Edward shillings, one Henry Sovereign, three James shillings, and Elizabeth Grote. Later, some Philip and Mary coins and a Spur Royal in paper. In 4-1, we need an unspecified sum. And in 5-1, all of that previous money appears in a trunk. Probably. Wow. Yeah, so that's a lot of money, but also like WTF is all of that because the only word that I said other than like gold money and purse and shillings that I understood <laughs> was um, pound. So yeah. WTF is all of that money. An angel is a gold coin that was introduced by Edward IV in 1465. During James's reign, it was worth about 11 shillings. A Portuguese is a Portuguese gold coin worth somewhere in the neighborhood of four pounds. It's the most mm. worthy coin on this list or the the coin with the most worth i suppose sure um uh a most noble, valuable yeah that thank you value <laughs> that's that's the word i'm looking for <laughs> uh, a noble is the first english gold coin that was produced in large quantities introduced by edward the third in the mid 1340s it's worth about the same as an angel the edward henry james elizabeth coins are coins produced during their reigns with images stamped on them pretty much um sovereigns were first in issued in 1489 by henry the seventh and last issued in 1604 they were worth about one pound a groat was worth four pence and finally a spur royal is an extremely rare gold coin issued only during james the first's reign uh it was worth between 15 and 17 shillings at various points i am so glad that the brits use the pound value system that they use now and not I'm glad they gave up the whole shillings nonsense, like in the 70s. Oh, do they not still use shillings? No. Oh, okay. I have, I've never been to England. I don't have a good grasp on their currency. I know that yeah. pounds and pence are things. Yeah. But I spend a whole it's, lot of time in the Renaissance, so I'm just like, yeah. shillings also. No, it's, it's similar to American money now in that there's like 20p coins, there's a 50p coin, there's a 10p coin, there's a penny, there's a tuppence, which is right. two pennies. Right. How um, many how many pence are in a pound? A hundred. Just like oh, a dollar. Okay, okay. Yeah. Alright. Yeah. So it's the What's same. A quid? They move to a quid is just uh it's just slang for a pound. Oh. Like a buck. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's like when saying a buck. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um but I think my mom my mom brought home some shillings when she traveled in the UK in the seventies and they, they were phasing it out like right after that. Oh, okay. um, so I have some old <laughs> British shillings, but it was weird, man. It was like some random number of shillings equal to pound. It was like 17. It was like so hard to do the math. <laughs> like I can't even, it was so complicated and dumb. It was so dumb. Our British friends so over do they there just have pence and pounds now. Is that it? They don't have like nickels and quarters and dimes. Well, like I said, there's 20p, which is 20 pence. Oh, I see. I see. 10p, I which is that was 10, a dumb pe ass 10 pence or 10 pennies. It's <laughs> a dumb, dumb yeah, question. Yeah, so like they're yeah. British coins. They yes. have dimes. They have the equivalent of <laughs> yes. dimes and quarters and nickels and things like that. Yes. They also have this really fun thing uh, called a tuppence, which is two pennies right. instead of one, which I right. love. Yeah. Um. But yes, it's it's just the it's the same like one to a hundred. I mean, you want There's to talk about a worthless coin, a penny, a, yeah, a, two, well, a penny. Yeah. But also like a two cent coin seems yeah. like why? Why do you need that? For what possible reason could you need that? You'd be surprised. So you carry around fewer of them. I don't know. I mean, oh, sure. I always liked okay. my tuppence and my tuppences um, but anyway yeah enough about money that's it's not super interesting frankly it's not but i learned let's some li things here today <laughs> let's listen to jess and aubrey figure out british <laughs> british right. money in real time this week on the hurly burly shakespeare show we take on world currency <laughs> Oh, wow. I'm bringing you the okay. relevant scholarship for your life yeah. today. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of, you know, that's that's really where I'm going to go today Great. is the relevant scholarship yeah. to the please, world today. Please do. It's not true. So uh, my big takeaway from this play that I tried very hard to read um, is that unlike Shakespeare, who 
tends to take care of his audiences and his actors with clear, although sometimes lengthy, exposition. Johnson don't give a flying fuck about you. Johnson doesn't care. <laughs> nope. He even says so in the prologue to yeah. this play. He showed sure up. He's like, he's like, if you're smart, I trust you. If you're not, fuck off. Um, and if you like th- these kinds of plays, you're a dipshit. Uh, and like, so that means that this play is like, it, you hit the ground running, literally running, because these the two main characters are like fighting as they burst in, you know, as they enter. So that this this play, I found it hard to follow. I found it harder even to read. Um, I think I probably, I, I would probably get it if I had been able to see it. Um, but I don't have access to my company's archives right now. And also, I'm really sad that I didn't get to, I didn't go see the MFA company, Steadfast Shakespeare. This was their Ren show a couple mm-hmm. months ago. And I should have gone to see it then, but I did not. And now I'm lamenting that because I feel like visually, I, seeing it in production, you'd probably have an easier time. But if you're just trying to read it and, and follow along, it's fucking hard because yeah. Johnson doesn't care. Yeah. And he just throws around a bunch of jargon immediately. And he doesn't care if you know it or not. <laughs> Uh, and he does not do anything that other playwrights do, many other playwrights, not just Shakespeare, but he doesn't do anything that other playwrights do to help acclimate you in any kind of way. It's really rather rude. So to help you all understand and myself understand a little slightly better, I did a little digging into the history of alchemy, which you definitely need if you're foolish enough to try to produce this play. Yeah. Uh, and I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In other words, I turn to Wikipedia in my time of need, um, and you may want an experienced dramaturg who doesn't bore as easily as I do, uh, or get bored, I guess, as easily as I do. Um, so everything I'm I'm citing now comes from a just a cursory out search on Wikipedia, but I pulled out the relevant information that hopefully will help you understand the jargon that. Johnson just hurls around in this play uh, or some of the ideas that underpin all of it. So alchemy encompasses several philosophical traditions spanning some four millennia and three continents. Uh, These traditions general penchant for cryptic and symbolic language makes it hard to trace their mutual influences and uh, quote unquote genetic relationships. You can distinguish between at least three major strands, which appear to be largely independent, at least in their earlier stages. And those are Chinese alchemy centered in China and its zone of cultural influence. Indian alchemy centered on the Indian subcontinent and Western alchemy, which occurred around the Mediterranean and whose center has shifted over millennia from Greco-Roman Egypt to the Islamic world and finally medieval Europe. And so, as you probably can guess, the the trajectory of the medieval, what became the medieval European sect of alchemy is what I'm going to be pursuing. Although Chinese alchemy is closely related to Taoism and Indian alchemy with its Dharmic faiths and Western alchemy developed its own philosophical system that was largely independent of, but also influenced by various Western religions. It is still an open question whether these three strands share a common origin uh, or to what extent they influence each other. Alchemists attempted to purify, mature, and perfect certain materials. Common aims were uh, the transmutation of base metals, aka lead, into noble metals, particularly gold. Guess why? Uh, The creation of an elixir of immortality uh, was also on the menu, um, as well as the creation of panaceas able to cure any disease and the development of an alkahest a universal solvent, which like slight footnote, modern science has kind of taken care of a lot of that stuff now. So really what these guys were searching for was science, like empirical science. Uh, and they were failing horribly at it. The dawn of Western alchemy is sometimes associated with that of metallurgy, uh, extending back to 3500 BC. The introduction of alchemy to Latin Europe may be dated back to, this is wildly specific, 11th of February, 1144, with the completion of Robert Chester's translation of the Arabic book, The Composition of Alchemy. Uh, which kind of makes sense. Okay, so during the Renaissance, um, hermetic and platonic foundations were restored to European alchemy. The dawn of medical, pharmaceutical, occult, and entrepreneurial branches of alchemy followed. And it's the entrepreneurial branch, I think, that this play takes root in, given 
the exploits of our main characters. So there are some influential dudes <laughs> that you, whose names you need to know in the Western branch of alchemy. So the esoteric systems developed that blended into alchemy into a broader uh, occult hermeticism Fusing it with magic and astrology and Christian Kabbalah uh, was started mostly by this German guy named Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, uh, who lived in the early uh, portion of the early modern period, 1486 to 1535. Um, he received his hermetic education in Italy in the schools of the humanists. And in his De Occulta Philosophia, uh, he attempted to merge Kabbalah, hermeticism and alchemy. Uh, John Dee, whose name might be a little more familiar, um, lived during the time of Shakespeare. He lived from 1527 to 1608. He followed in Agrippa's occult tradition. Uh, he was better known for angel summoning and divination and his role as an astrologer, cryptographer, and consultant to Queen Elizabeth I. His book, Monas Hieroglyphica, written in 1564, the year Shakespeare was born, was his most popular and influential work. His writing portrayed alchemy as a sort of terrestrial astronomy in line with hermetic axiom, uh, as above, so below. Um, during the 17th century, a short-lived supernatural interpretation of alchemy became popular, including uh, support by fellows of the Royal Society, Robert Boyle and Elias Ashmole. And if there is anybody out there who's a fan of the book series A Discovery of Witches, these names should sound very familiar to you. Proponents of the supernatural interpretation of alchemy believed that the Philosopher's Stone, which Jess mentioned before, might be used to summon and communicate with angels, as well as turn lead into gold, or really anything into gold. Entrepreneurial opportunities were common for the alchemists of Renaissance Europe, as you can imagine. Alchemists yep. were contracted by the elite for practical purposes related to mining, medical services, and the production of chemicals, medicines, metals, and gemstones. Rudolf II, a.k.a. the Holy Roman Emperor in the late 16th century, famously received and sponsored various alchemists in his court at Prague, including John Dee and his associate Edward Kelly. Uh, King James I of England was among several other monarchs at this same time who contracted alchemists as well. Uh, although most of these appointments were legitimate, the trend of pseudo-alchemical fraud continued through the Renaissance. So the TLDR of all of this is, in the eyes of a variety of esoteric and hermetic practitioners, alchemy is fundamentally spiritual. Transmutation of lead into gold is presented as an analogy for personal transmutation, purification, and perfection. Many high-ranking Christians, including Martin Luther, the founder of Lutheranism, and some popes at this time praised this sort of alchemy because of its consistency with biblical teachings, because they were taking it metaphorically. Okay, Both the transmutation of common metals into gold and the universal panacea symbolized evolution from an imperfect, diseased, corruptible, and ephemeral state towards a perfect, healthy, incorruptible, everlasting state, right? Going from being a human basically to being an angel. Uh, so the Philosopher's Stone then represented a mystical key that would make all of this evolution possible, applied to the alchemist himself, the twin goal symbolized his evolution from ignorant to enlightened, and the stone represented a hidden spiritual truth or power that would lead to that goal. Which is why this is not seen as witchcraft, even though it is just as bonkers as what women were accused of during this same time. Feel my eye roll, children. However, and this is me editorializing now. However, like most things, alchemy got corrupted by greedy assholes who literally wanted gold from nothing. And if there's one thing Ben Johnson understands, it's assholes. Also, synthesizing gold is literally doable now because science. Oh, the irony. And that, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, folks of all genders, uh, that is my primer on alchemy. <laughs> You're welcome. Love it. Learned some yeah. shit today. Yeah. I was trying, actually, when I started this search, I was trying to find, like, how to do the alchemy. But, mm -hmm. like, that's just, that is way too esoteric for me. It's really complicated. It's the really fucking complicated. The history of alchemical science is is like actual science it's really it's not for the layman like no. you can't just it is not no you gotta you gotta learn some shit yeah so yeah. so hopefully this gets you in the mind frame to go out and find that actual stuff for yourself because johnson does throw around a ton of those terms like alchemical jargon terms in this play 
Or yeah. even some pseudo terms. I like some of the characters like say some shit that I'm not sure is actually aligned with an alchemist's real practice, but who knows? That's all I that's what I got <laughs> for this play. Love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, is it game time? I don't want to think up a game. I don't want to prolong the conversation about this. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, neither one of us wants to do line roulette for this play. Just no. Sad. Just, let's not play a game. Let's not play a game. All right. Let's no games. Let's move on and okay. also maybe like talk about how we're doing. Great. But first, we need to issue a correction. Apparently, um, we yep. say a lot of things on this podcast, and sometimes we misspeak or misinterpret information or just plain get things wrong. So it only seems right to correct as necessary. Take it away, Jess. Yes. Um, so I don't actually know if this made it into whatever episode it was where I said this, um, because I am so far behind in listening to the finished episodes. Uh, but I know that I said it. And so if I said it just to you and not to our listeners at large, then I'm correcting for just you. Um, but at some point in the recent ish past ish, uh, I said that in the seminal classic of our times, Mamma Mia 2, our Lord and Savior, Christine Baranski, uttered the iconic line, by, be still my beating vagina, about <laughs> the guy who's the Dos Equis guy. Yeah. Um, but I had that wrong. She said it, in fact, about Silver Fox, Tony Garcia, who can fucking get it because he's hot. Um, Great. In other news, I watched Mamma Mia 2 again last night. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I was wondering what brought that up. I was like, how does she Yeah, I watched that? that. I watched it last night. Yeah. I <laughs> I, I, went, oh, I, I don't wrong. remember if I cut any or all of that conversation yeah. out of the episode. So, some Shakespeare okay. bubble gossip. Take it away, Jess. Yeah. Um, so last week I talked about how uh, the, there's a, a production of Teenage Dick, which is an adaptation of Richard III that you can stream out of Theater Wit in Chicago. Um, I watched that production over the weekend. Um, the script is fucking phenomenal. Get your hands on the script Teenage Dick by Mike Lou, L-E-W. It is so good. It's mm -hmm. so good. Uh, this production was aggressively okay. It, the, it was in a, I don't know what the theatrical setup is actually called, but there, there were audience on like two sides, but facing each other. Oh, sure. Um, that's called Alley. Seating or was, avenue yeah, seating? Was, sure. That's what it was. Yeah. Um, and it, it looked as though it, it, um, that kind of seating was necessitated by the space, but also uh, leads to a lot of staging complications. And I am not a fan. Um, also, at the risk of giving spoilers, here's your spoiler warning. I guess skip forward if you don't want to hear some spoilers about this text. <laughs> um I will keep it brief, my spoilers, so that if you just want to skip forward 30 seconds, you can probably get away with that without hearing my spoilers. So uh, here we go. Um, so there, there is a single character in this play who commits suicide at the end, and the actor that they had cast to play this character was the only uh, woman of color in the cast, the only person of color in the cast. Um, and I think that that uh, is not a great casting choice because what does it say that our only black bodied actor um, is committing suicide in mm. a, a cast full of white people mm. um, or ostensibly white presenting people. Mm -hmm. So that is, that was my biggest uh, issue with this particular production. Um, if you uh, are in the DC area, Wooly Mammoth is still planning to do a production of Teenage Dick this summer, I think in June ish. I mean, obviously TBD, we'll see if that right. happens. But right. uh, last I heard my friend who works there said that they were still planning to go forward with it. So yeah, yeah, I, I mean, honestly, like if you can if you can get your hands on the script, read it. It's phenomenal. It's so, so I'm I'm into it. Um, but I don't think that this particular cast was up uh, for the challenge. Um, another thing that okay. I do want to say about the script is that the you know, the sort of the first page of the script that's like, here are the list of characters and here's who they are that the DP. Yeah, <laughs> that that's what that's called. Yeah, uh, does in fact, explicitly instruct theater companies who want to produce to hire disabled actors. Hmm. Um, there are two roles that are specifically written for disabled uh, actors, and they in this production were both um, seemed to be 
uh, cast that way, although I have questions about um, whether or not the, the actor who played Richard was... Um, Anyway, the, neither here nor there. It is not. I'm not the the disabled police, and it's not for me to say like, well, you weren't disabled enough for my taste. Like that's <laughs> some ableist bullshit right there. Um, anyway, uh, I think it's cool that the, yeah. the playwright is like, fucking do it. And if you can't find any, you're not trying hard enough. So yeah. don't be a dick. I mean, I'm noticing that more and more with contemporary play scripts Mm -hmm. um, that Mm -hmm. playwrights are uh, many, many playwrights are taking the step of insisting on a certain kind of casting, not because of like some hoity toity vision they have of a character, but because of uh, representation on stage. Mm -hmm. A lot of it seems to come from that, from that place lately. And I think it's kind of awesome. And that's how change happens. You know, Mm -hmm. that's how we get representation, representation of all types and shapes and colors of bodies. So that's, that's pretty great. Yeah. Uh, Also like the next major Shakespeare company that it wants to do Richard the third, would it fucking kill you to hire a disabled actor? Would it? Right. Yeah. No, it wouldn't. So do that. Maybe it definitely would not. Um, yeah. So that's, that's, what i have cool cool um okay so one announcement near to my home front um is that the american shakespeare center like many regional theater companies these days is piloting what we're calling blurkfers tv which is blackfriars all the vowels gone i don't know why we did that but i'm not in marketing um blkfrs tv and you can follow it on facebook and on i think Instagram and Twitter. And uh, basically all of our spring, uh, midwinter and spring shows that got canceled, we have filmed them. We are going to be broadcasting them. Um, I'm not sure whether it's an arrangement like you had with Teenage Dick where you need to like buy a ticket and reserve your quote unquote seat, you know, to watch. Uh, It might be something like that because of equity rules um, for Mm -hmm. some of the shows. Um, But we also did recently on Sunday, this past Sunday, we did a live cast of Midsummer Night Stream, the Midsummer 90 yep. production, which was really, really great um, to see my friends do the thing one last time. Um, and it was such a cute show. And uh, so I was like sobbing by the end of it. I, <laughs> the closings of a Midsummer Night Stream make me sob like nothing else. And I'm not quite sure why, but it's true. Um, so if you're a fan of ASC or you want to just know what I keep talking about all the time, be on the lookout for that. You can see work in that beautiful space i heard a twitter rumor that king and no king is gonna be available oh, yeah. to be seen yeah all of the ren shows Fantastic. all of four of the ren shows um and possibly a, a reading of a chase made in cheapside as well which was going to be our fifth sort of ren run production so yeah uh and that's got people in our circle particularly excited because of the way we do the ren season which is no directors and etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. um so yes you might be able to see a king and no king amongst um 104 to henry four and our very very cute production of much ado about nothing which um warms the little cockles of my heart long-term listeners will know exactly how i feel about the henry's but quick pitch for king and no king it's awesome yeah and it's an incest play until it's not an incest play (laughs) yep uh which like and that's all i'm gonna say about it but i this play this play had me gripped to the page when i read it for comps um and also there's like a killer line which i don't know if it made it into y'all's production but i hope it did because it's like the best dick joke ever and it's uh some some old man says something like every limb of mine grows stronger except the one that should and it's it's an impotency joke Uh and i'm like yeah i'm i'm here for this yeah I am sign me up. It's a good line. It is, it's a good line. I think it made it into our production. Good. It is a fantastically silly, bonkers, cuckoo bananas play. And our actors treat it as such. They make very interesting choices um, that are worth watching. If if our listeners out there are interested in learning more about A King and No King, uh, you can go to Wikipedia and read about it. Um, there's mm-hmm. a fulsome summary on the Wikipedia page that someone wrote. At some point, I don't Was know. Was it who. you? <laughs> definitely me. It's definitely when you. I when I took my comps notes and I went to the Wikipedia page and I was like, "This summary is two sentences long. Let me throw in my comps notes." Nice. Yeah, yeah. actually, a lot of early modern play summaries on Wikipedia are now because I read them for comps. 
and you're, took hey, it's a service notes. you're doing for the world, really. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. Anyway, so, anyway, so Black Forest TV, uh, that's happening, and I'll keep you posted on when those things go up. Uh, next, in this world of coronavirus, in case you hadn't already noticed, Sir Patrick Stewart is reading a sonnet a day, a Shakespeare sonnet a day, live on Twitter during quarantine, and I think it's great. It's just... He's using the Folger editions. Is he? Of okay. the sonnets also. P.S. Cool. Good for him. Interested. Yeah. And he, he does not seem to be that. doing them in chronological order in any kind of way. He's so. just reading what he likes. I think he yeah. started with Sonnet 116 and is kind of going from there. But he is a gem among humans anyway. So, like, if you want to watch him read a sonnet, like, he, that's out there on Twitter. Um, this is sort of outside the realm of the shakes bubble, but it is in the realm of theater. So I thought I would bring it up. Um, Tony Award winning playwright Terrence McDally died of complications from COVID-19 virus. He was 81 years old. Um, just a quote from Variety magazine, in case you're not familiar with his work. McNally's resume was notable for its range, barrier-breaking depictions of gay life, an interest in subjects such as middle-aged romance and opera considered taboo by commercial theater. Um, he is among one of the first big names in the theater industry to fall victim to coronavirus uh, and, a, and a beloved figure. By, like, by all accounts, he was just a sweet and generous guy. Uh, who had a very sort of up and down career. Um, he wrote the book for Ragtime, the musical. So if you if you're into musical theater, he you know Ragtime, he had his hand in that. But he also wrote you know many plays on his in his own right. Like um, you might know his name, you might not. But this thing is real and it's taking people out. Yeah. So all that to segue into how are you doing in this time of coronavirus, Jess? Did I see you tweet that you had gotten into some kind of summer program that you're excited about? That you can oh, you talk yeah. about it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I uh, the, so the Folger runs you know these these educational programs um, all the time, even though now the Folger is closed for the renovation yeah. for two ish years. Uh, so the the last program of the nineteen twenty academic year is scheduled for July at Texas A and M. It's called Making Meaning. Um, and it's it's focused on book production and the book trade and paleography and manuscript culture and that kind of thing, um, cool. which is uh, going to be really useful for the dissertation chapter that I will write this summer. If it still happens, not my dissertation, right. that will happen. But if the program still happens, right. Um, which, you know, anything could happen with that. Uh, but also two of my colleagues from Alabama g got into that um, and a friend from Mary Baldwin got into that. And it's just like, like, if it happens, it's going to be a fucking party because it's just like me and all of my friends hanging out in Texas for a week eating tacos. <laughs> like, awesome. I, I ain't mad at that. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, I, that if if uh, if the virus lets us do things, then in, <laughs> in the summer, I'll be learning some shit about uh, books. Um, That's fun. And that that seems like everything. And on that note, uh, thank you so much for listening. We hope you leave the podcast more informed than when you started. <laughs> Tune in next week. We're going to talk about uh, the Duchess of Malfi. So, yeah, Malfi one man. Wham it out. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, leave us a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For show notes and other fun stuff, visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. You can email us at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram. Or hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. Yeah I, yeah, I mean, one thing that, you know, quarantine has done for me is that it is no bra season all the damn time. Oh, like, man, I haven't worn a bra. I weeks. may be in quarantine, but my boobs don't need to be. You know what I mean? Nope. Like, no boob jail no, for us. No more boob jail. It's kind of great. Mm -hmm.